Welcome, everyone, to this episode of The Late Edition. For YakimaValleyHops.com, my name is Caleb Schwecki, and thank you for joining us. This is the first episode in a series focused around starting your own brewery. We just went through this process ourselves by building a little one-barrel brew house here at Yakima Valley Hops, so we will share some first-hand experience that we learned along the way, but we also wanted to call on some industry experts, talk with equipment manufacturers, and pro brewers who have already done it themselves. And even if you already have your own brewery or are a home brewer with no thoughts of going pro, this series will still have valuable information that will help improve your brewing process and better your craft. We wanted to start the series off with one of the most important parts of brewing great beer, and that is fermentation temperature control. That is why we invited Tom Stone from Thermal Care to walk us through everything brewers need to think about and plan for when installing a glycol system. So let's get right into it. Enjoy. Well, thank you so much, both of you, for joining me today. Uh, on my right is Chris Milroy, technical brewer at Yakima Valley Hops and owner-operator of Shorthead Brewing. Yes, thank you for having me. And to my left is Tom Stone from Thermal Care, the national sales manager of Industrial Markets. Did I get that right? That is correct. Thank you. Very cool. Thank you so much for coming out. I hear you came out from the East Coast. That's correct. Yeah, I came from Charleston, South Carolina, and our uh, our Thermal Care factory is actually out of Chicago. Very cool. I used to live in Milwaukee, so spent a lot of time in a lot of time in Chicago. Yeah, I was in Chicago for about ten years, and then I got to go south to some better weather. Nice. How long have you been working for Thermal Care, kind of doing this? So I've been in the process cooling industry for almost 15 years now. I think it would be 15 years in August. I started with Thermal Care right out of college uh, with a mechanical engineering degree, uh, doing inside sales engineer. So really technical support and then sales support for the outside staff. Uh, moved into some other positions, took over as a regional manager for the East Coast. That was how I made it to Charleston and needed to be in my territory. Uh, and then uh, this position as the national sales manager of industrial markets came up. And we kind of clarified industrial markets there because our business is plastics processing and everything else. And I handle everything else. And within that realm, uh, breweries is a, a big player for us. And so uh, that's one of the things I'm in charge of and developing business and you know pushing sales and marketing. Very cool. Well, uh, I think it's about time that we open a beer. There we go. I am uh, just getting into one. I know. I know you're sipping on something over there, Tom. Cheers! Thank you so much for coming Cheers. on out and you know talking about talking about this cool stuff with us. Sorry. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. the The place here is great, and working with Chris has been great. So it's uh, all a positive experience for me. Awesome. Yeah. Let's uh, let's just start off talking about something fun. What what are people drinking out in, in Charleston in your neck of the woods? Oh, well, Charleston's actually been become quite a hub for craft breweries. So there I want to say the last time I checked, there was 27 different craft brews in the area. Uh, a few years ago, South Carolina changed their laws. Uh, for what was required and what the you know, like a brew pub was allowed to do. And so it made it, it went from pretty restrictive to much more, you know, free. 
And so that just spurred this whole growth of that industry in the area. So a lot of beer being drank out there. Any any styles that you see time and time again that people kind of talk about? or I see, a, I mean, a, you know, a staple across almost all of them is some variation of an IPA. Uh, that seems to be one of the most popular I see. Uh, there's some, some, you know, unique ones out there, too. There's a, a, a blonde coffee finished stout that... It was really unique. I actually really like that one. It's one of my favorites. So I would like to uh, also say that he was supposed to bring some of that when he came because he wouldn't mail it. And he, uh, it's illegal to mail it. it. <laughs> we, uh, we we do have you know some good beer around here. Chris, can you can you introduce this one? What we're what we're drinking right now? Yeah, this is a collaboration that we did with a local brewery called uh, Yakima Valley Brewing. It is a Talus and HBC five eighty six. Mosaic uh, hazy IPA with all Lupamax. Um, we had a really great brew day with those guys. It was a lot of fun. Um, I don't know if anybody's seen the video, but it was pretty funny. I asked Jake how my face was, and he didn't edit it out. So it was, how's my face? It was pretty great. <laughs> but uh, really solid beer. Talos has got a great little bit of coconut finish because it's related to Sabro, but it's less powerful. So it's... Real smooth, round, very pillowy. Um, it, this beer is great. Um, I've been uh, I've been drinking drinking it, and it's pretty dang good. Nice. So today we're kind of talking about you know how to start a brewery, what all goes into it, and one of the most important parts of any brewery is the fermentation temperature control, right? Yes. So, Tom, that's why you're here, to talk about the hardware, the whys, the hows, the whats. And, Chris, you're sitting here because you just did this. You just, you know, started a little one-barrel brewery. You're brewing beer on it. You're using the Thermal Cure Chiller, and you did it. You kind of talked about how it was a new experience for you, just building it all, doing it all, figuring it out, and you kind of figured it out. So I just wanted to kind of start with the easy question of why does fermentation temperature control matter so much? Yeah, and that's kind of a, it's a huge thing, you know. I mean, even if you're a home brewer and you're brewing five gallons, temperature control is the biggest thing that you can do. I mean, if you want consistency in beer, that's where you're going to control your yeast growth. That's where you're going to suppress esters. I mean, you know, I mean, you can you can put a a beer in ambient temperature at 60, 70 degrees. I mean, we did it here uh, with the Kavikis where you can ferment them hot, 70 degree ambient temperature, and the thing was fermenting at 89 degrees because you have that exothermic reaction from the yeast uh, fermenting. And so really when it comes down to important things in your brewery, temperature control is like number one. I mean, there there's a lot of things that you can fix with a really good fermentation, right? You can you can brew a, an okay batch of beer and really fix it with a fermentation, but you can brew a perfect beer and ruin it with a with a fermentation. Um I've I've seen some some brewers before that as home brewers, they had great great beers. And then as they scaled up to try to do like a, a small nano thing like I have now, they skimped on where they thought they could, and then they had trouble producing consistent beers or even more their homebrew recipes that they had done. So it really is the most important part. And if you do not splurge and just 
get jacketed for mentors, honestly, I think it's the biggest mistake you can make. Tom, anything to add there? I mean, I think he really hit the nail on the head, and he knows more about, you know, the, the jacketed for mentors and things like that. You know, I'm kind of pigeonholed, you know, tunnel visioned on just this chiller here and where I really come in is I understand, you know, process cooling. And so I can help evaluate, you know, where are those, you know, cooling demand, cooling loads coming from in that process. And so what, you know, thermal care tries to do, and we, you know, tried to help Chris with as well was to calculate out what is that cooling load so that we get the right size chiller, because there's, you know, a whole bunch of different sizes, very small up to very big. And, you know, some of the, the breweries we've done, you know, we're putting in huge outdoor chiller systems or, you know, small package units like we did here. So the key is, is to identify that those heat loads and know, you know, what they are and to be able to calculate that out. And a lot of it, it's a pretty, you know, basic equation. You have your wart cooling and like your cold liquor tanks where you're pulling a, a big mass of water down, you know, or liquid down. Uh, from a you know a high temperature to a low temperature and that's a you know, where a substantial amount of that cooling comes from and so that could be you know even 20 to 30 times the heat that's going to be generated by that exothermic reaction from the active fermentation uh, but you know you still need to be able to handle all of those and then you also you know have your your knockdown or your crash cool and then you have your bright tanks and they're just, you know, that's just from ambient heat getting in that system that you have to remove to maintain the temperature of your beer that's sitting there. And so all of those things come into play all based on the number of vessels, the barrels that you're doing. And so you calculate that out and that's where you determine your heat load. But all of those things aren't running at the same time. And so you don't want your chiller running at full speed during all of that stuff because you're going to, you know, waste a lot of energy by overcooling that system. Uh, so something that Thermal Care does is we actually have a calculator that's on our brewery page of our website that helps you. You input the information that was specific to your operation and it spits out the chiller model that's correct for you. And so that's, you know, twofold. One, it helps, you know, to verify that you get the right chiller, but it also takes into account that we're operating these systems at a much lower temperature than most other like industrial processes. So it also derates that chiller appropriately for that lower temperature so that you don't accidentally undersize your chiller too. So all of those things are factors that we have to consider to make sure you get the right solution because one, you know, we could damage the equipment if it's not right or to become a bottleneck in your production pun kind of intended there but and ultimately where our experience comes in is we want our customers to never even have to think about our equipment and especially we don't want to slow them down from being able to make their product and in this case you know god's gift to earth and beer there we go. So we can, uh, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that calculator because from me, you know, not having an intimate knowledge of this stuff, it kind of sounds like a, maybe like an overwhelming task. You know, you talked about a lot of variables, finding your peaks. So we'll drop the, we'll drop the calculator link in the show notes for the episode description. But can you kind of talk about like some of those variables? Like you mentioned barrelage. Yeah. So it, it really comes down to you're pulling a mass of liquid over a temperature change in a set amount of time. And that's all the factors that go into calculating energy transfer. And so I'm speaking about it generically because we apply the same principle across all different industries. 
And so here, the thing is, is to find a language that your customer speaks. And so we'll talk in barrels and tanks. And then everybody speaks temperatures and our calculators based on Fahrenheit temperatures because we're in America. Uh, and so, and then it's, you know, the time period because it's a rate, a cooling rate. So you have to have that time factor in there. I could say a million BTUs. But if I say a million BTUs in 24 hours or a million BTUs in one hour, I've just drastically impacted the size of that chiller system. And so to understand those factors, um, just to really know what you want out of your system, this calculator then takes those into consideration and runs the actual mathematical calculation for you. So it really is, you know, I don't want to say foolproof, but it does give you that sense that you have the correct solution because it takes your data that you know for a fact is true and it uses that. And so what, you know, good data in, good data out is really where, you know, the philosophy is there. Yeah. And I will, I'll add to that, that, uh, as you know, a, a novice to try to build one of these glycol loops, I mean, I was lucky enough. I went to a pretty local brewery here, uh, varietal and Chris, Chris Baum was like a huge help in, figuring out how the glycol loop worked because he had built his. Um, and, you know, it was it was incredibly daunting to try to, like, look at these lines and figure out what is what. And then, you know, to have somebody there that could just walk me through it. Um, because, you know, we wanted to build something that was kind of dynamic a little bit. You know, we, want, we wanted it to be kind of a show front for... Uh, commercial brewers that were going to come here, um, and you know, we wanted, we wanted, we we definitely did it different, and we'll get into that later. Um, but you know, just having somebody that I could go and look at how it worked and explain it and stuff was was huge. It's kind of daunting because you don't understand how how far do I want to drop that. Well, you want you want to drop it if I want to drop it to from seventy degrees to thirty two degrees in a twenty four hour period. You know, and that's kind of where I went. And we kind of, we wanted to do a little more expansion and stuff. So our chiller is a little bit oversized, which we kind of had to build it a little bit different than, you know, we had to add a little more parts and pieces just to be able to uh, deal with the pressures that it was going to put out because that chiller is way oversized for the, like the length of the loop and everything. It is kind of daunting to figure out exactly what you need for these calculators. And that's where it's been really wonderful to work with Thermal Care because I have called Tom at like 9 o'clock at night here in Washington, and he lives way over on the east side, and he answered. And, you know, we got it figured out. I mean, it's it's been, a you know, wonderful to work with them from service standpoint, from... Uh, troubleshooting and figuring out exactly what we needed because you know as as a new brewer I mean you're you're like my passion's making beer I've never built a glycol loop but also you know as as somebody trying to build something and trying to save wherever I can I'm a very like mechanical minded person having the advocacy that I did through thermal care uh, I, I couldn't have done it any other way I mean I had talked to a few different companies and, you know, I got some great feedback, but Tom was just super driven to help. And I, yeah, I just, 
I, I, I couldn't have gone any other way. Well, thanks. I, I do appreciate that compliment. And, you know, that's something we strive to do is to give that, you know, support every possible place that we can. And it's been great working with Chris, too, because, you know, he is he's a sharp guy and he's willing to listen and work and get things done and do it the right way. And so that's the best partner that I could ask for in a situation like this. And, you know, some of the cr- things that Chris and I discussed, you know, on some of those, you know, late night phone calls was uh, just, you know, what sort of information I could try to help him with. And that was a, a learning experience for me as well to understand, you know, because I'm I'm used to working with guys, that, you know, companies that are multi-million dollar companies that have maintenance department, engineering department. And so, you know, everything that I have, my canned documentation, give that to those guys and they run off and they know exactly what's going on. Working with somebody that doesn't have that exposure to that type of situation kind of opens my eyes and helps me understand what I can do in the future to you know, help that out. And so that actually prompted me to develop what we call our glycol chiller prep guide. And what it actually includes in there is it's different sections. One is just talking about the expected communication. So like the the documentations that will go back between uh, thermal care and our customer, you know, the brewer in that case, you know, purchase orders, order acknowledgements, shipping notifications, things like that. And just so they understand how that process works, because if you've never bought, you know, heavy duty industrial machinery, it's not really something that you do every day. And so it's a different experience. Then you have, you know, the shipping coordination. It's, you know, how is this shipped? What sort of freight do you need? Because it's not going to be shipped UPS. It's going, you know, on a, a, a freight truck. Uh, and so how that's going to work, what you need to be prepared to offload that. So like receiving the unit, properly inspecting it, uh, and then where to put this unit because there's different designs. Some can be located inside. Some are designed to be outside. Uh, you need to consider the ambient conditions. And so we help to you know kind of spell that out for the customer uh, and then we also offer some electrical and mechanical installation tips so that way you know each step of this process you know you have an actual guide now and then finally there's a section on starting the unit up and what sort of maintenance you need and what sort of companies should you be uh you know acquainting yourself with for the service of that equipment as well and so that prep guide was something that kind of came out of, you know, my discussions with Chris, understanding, you know, from a different perspective, what information can we provide up front to be a resource for our customers? So that's been a big deal. And one of the other things was we developed some, you know, generic piping schematics that will offer guidance for somebody that's never done a system like this before and show the proper parts and pieces that need to go in there. And so, you know, I was able to give Chris, you know, some sketches of some stuff that we had, but to do a nice, you know, formal document that we now have available. And so those were big things that, you know, Chris had an impact on me to improve my process as well. So that was a, a benefit. Well, and that's one of the, the best parts about the craft brewing community is that it really is collaborative. Like it's back and forth. You know, you mentioned Chris down at Varietal, just all these people working together, you know, to build the craft community, things like that. But I do want to kind of go back. Chris, you mentioned, you know, that we knew that this chiller was going to be a little bit oversized for us. Tom, can you kind of speak to like, you know, what are some of those considerations you just can't get the biggest gun and go hunting a duck that's that's actually a pretty good analogy because you use too big of a gun you're gonna blow that duck into smithereens and you're not gonna have anything left that's pretty wasteful and so to understand you know picking the right chiller 
is you need to understand, you know, chillers are rated in tons and that's not like 2000 pounds. It's tons of cooling. It's a whole different discussion about how that's developed. But to do, you know, a simple example, you could have a a five ton heat load and a 10 ton chiller. And what happens is that chiller is either it wants to run at 100%. And so that's where it's happy. But if you have too small of a load, it'll overcool, then that chiller has to turn off. And then the temperature has to build back up, then it turns back on, overcools, builds back up. So what happens there is I call it porpoising, and you're just going up and down over your desired set point. So you have poor temperature control. So what the, you know, the solution there is it's called hot gas bypass. It's a capacity control. So I have a five ton load. I have a 10 ton chiller. That hot gas bypass essentially almost, I would say, simulates a, a false load and it actually adds that additional five tons. So the chiller itself looking at the system parameters that it measures off of to control itself, it thinks it has 10 tons. So it's happy. It's going to dial in on that temperature and it's going to stay there nice and easy. But what's happening is you're wasting a lot of energy. And so that's one of the biggest things for brewing is that your heat load can vary pretty widely. And so what you want to be able to do is actually have a chiller that tracks with that rather than just you know, pseudo loading your chiller so it's happy and runs and does its job right. And so one of the things that Chris was a big advocate for, and it's something that I pro promote very heavily for the brewery industry, is it's called a variable speed compressor design. And so what it does is it modulates the speed of that compressor and it turns that 10 ton chiller into a five ton chiller and only consumes the energy that's required to run, say, a five-ton chiller. So now you've saved all that energy that would have been wasted. And so all the times that you're not, you know, running your wort cooling or your cold liquor tanks and you're just doing active fermentation or you're just doing your bright tanks, what that does is you save all that energy. And so the unit will actually ultimately over time pay for itself. I've seen that were six months to, you know, five years on the payback on that because it's very dependent on the scenario and the energy costs that you're seeing and things like that. But there, there ultimately is a payback on that. And the unit also really does well on its temperature control, which ultimately is my biggest concern is delivering the right temperature all the time. Because from my customer's perspective, they don't care what my chiller does as long as they're getting the right flow and temperature out of that thing. And so it does both of those. It does the right delivery, but it also saves all the energy, which is a huge deal. Yeah, and I'm, I'm really glad that you brought up energy efficiency because brewing has historically just been a very energy intensive process. Currently, right now, today, we're seeing energy costs going up. There are a lot of, a lot of rising costs that brewers are seeing and energy is definitely one of them. So it is, it is really important to make sure that you're not wasting energy. Uh, having that variable speed seems like it's really helps you, helps you hit that right, that right stride. That's absolutely correct. And just another thing is, you know, it's good for the environment ultimately in a, you know, roundabout way. And there's actually some companies, uh, some breweries that we've worked with that have gotten rebates from their local power companies because when you start looking at variable speed things, that really piques the interest of power companies because it's such an energy saver. And so I've had uh, customers, it, they got a rebate that 
basically paid for the additional cost to go with that variable speed design and so they immediately came out of the gate with an roi on that that you know adder of zero which is amazing yeah and i'll say you know when we built the the little nano brewery here at yakima valley hops the big thing that john uh snyder stressed to me was we want it to be innovative because we want to show people you know spark change spark something in you know we got the the big brewers that come up here for hop selection and you know we want something that's going to you know get their minds going and uh it just fit really perfect that we did the nq series from thermal care because yeah i mean it's energy costs and like you said i mean energy costs are always rising i mean right now the price of fuel is crazy hopefully hopefully it's down next year but 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 like i mean you really have to be dynamic in brewing anyway i mean when it comes down to it you're kind of fighting over 50 cents and any little penny that you can kind of pinch is something that's going to help you in the long run and that's that's really where we kind of where we really got behind thermal cares nq series with that variable speed so we could you know yeah pay for the chiller but also show these brewers coming in here that they could actually you know do the same and um, you know we got a little five ton chiller but you know you you know we got a two barrel brewery now you talk about you know 120 barrel fermenters that you have a huge chiller on those energy savings are huge and they are huge for the environment as well so it was kind of it, it just fit the whole program to do to do the work with thermal care and um i'm super excited how it's gone out i mean we haven't had really any issues thankfully with the with the chiller and the little tiny issues we did i mean they were just handled right away just completely handled by thermal care and and i i can't thank them enough for all the work that they've done for us well and that kind of brings up an important topic too like fermentation temperature control is important for every size brewery right it's not just big regional packaging brewers that need it even at the little one two barrel you know size you need it and i expect with pilsners lagers cold IPAs, all of those things becoming more popular, more prevalent, I do expect a lot more focus being put on temperature control. Oh, definitely, definitely. And I mean, really, what it comes down to, and this is kind of what I'm what I'm facing now that I've started the nano brewery and I'm I'm starting to actually get beers that are gonna be flagships, is you know, it's it's really hard to make a great beer it's incredibly hard to make a consistent beer. And so you want to limit all the factors that you can so you don't have to have that stress, you know? Like like you said, I mean, you're going to you're going to have a different fermentation at different temperatures because you're not controlling that yeast growth. You're not controlling, you know, I mean, if you put a yeast at 90 degrees, it's going to go like a kid in Toys R Us. It's just going to go wild, you know? I mean, you really want to control the growth, control the ester profiles, and and maintain that beer what you think it should be. The problem that I see people do is that they see the cost of getting glycol and you know having jacketed fermenters. But if you were a home brewer, you would throw it in a fridge with a temperature controller. Well, yeah, but it's not that expensive, and it's like. When you're looking at, you know, starting a business and actually trying to make your livelihood off of it, you really have to put your best foot forward. 
and sell the best beer that you can make because it has your name on it. And that's where you really need to go into it with, yes, I need jacketed fermenters because I need to be able to control that consistency. Um, you know, people talk about water and water is pretty important, especially for like lighter beers. But, you know, you could do a water profile on a Pilsner and then ferment it at 90 degrees and it would not be that great. So you really have to put in what's the most important steps that I can control. Fermentation temp control, number one. When when looking at the NQ series, is there anything else that you'd like to add other than like the variable variable speed control? Yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of features, and this is you know a product that we've been working on and you know continually improving over the you know the NQ series, not so much, but the uh, the you know the idea of a packaged portable chiller like this. Thermocare has been doing this for over 50 years now, and so you know we have an engineering department, we have R and D development, so we're constantly trying to improve this you know this unit and we were one of the very first to come out with this variable speed compressor design but our units that you know they're very robustly built they are truly an industrial unit they're designed for uh, facilities that are going to operate 24 7 and even you know 365 like they don't shut down and so our unit needs to be able to handle that kind of wear and tear and needs to have that sort of dependability and then you know one of the things chris mentioned was you know the you know couple minor issues we had like during startup with you know maybe updating a program on the plc something like that one of the things that you know in thermal care's philosophy is you know you re- you run to the problem and that's where you really you know build the relationship with your customer because you know anybody can sell the equipment it's whether or not you can support it and that's where you you know you get return customers you get that word of mouth to have people talk about it and just you guys inviting me here for to do this after we worked with you on this I think that speaks volumes about how that relationship with, you know, Thermal Care and Chris really worked out and kind of gave us the opportunity to prove ourselves and demonstrate that to somebody that, you know, has a voice in this industry. And so that's something that we're looking for is to build relationships like that. And the best way you can do that is, you know, respond when you're called upon to help. And I will add, I am a midnight caller. <laughs> I mean, I, I, when I was building the brewery, I was here all hours of the night and I would call and I always had an answer. Like, I mean, I couldn't believe that, you know, be like midnight, one o'clock in the morning and here's a service tech calling me. I mean, (laughs) it's pretty amazing. That's, that's, I will speak to their service department is top notch. And when you're, when you're actually buying something, really the service is really the most important issue. I used to run aggregate crushers and stuff. And when we would, you know, spend $3 million on a plant, it all came down to who could actually have the service. And I think, you know, it's true to this day that a company that can stand behind their service is is one that is huge, you know? I mean, just, you can't, you, you cannot find anything better than great service now especially nowadays it's it's really hard and i will give kudos to thermal care on always having an answer and answering a call no matter what crazy hour i try to call yeah i I will say that a few of those late night calls that i answered for chris was you know this was mid pandemic 
So I may have been staying up a little later having a couple beers myself. So that, you know, not the exact scenario for everybody else. But, you know, we do have a dedicated service department. And, you know, I wanted I was working with Chris on this collaboration. So, you know, I was answering his calls. But we do have that service department and we have a 24-7 design for it because of the types of customers we work with in other industries. So that, you know, just because of our footprint in the cooling market, the brewing people that we're going to work with will be able to leverage that because we already have it in place. We're set up to do that right now. Well, and that is important too, because just like you building the brewery, you know, a lot of the other people getting into the craft brewing industry, they are just doing it themselves, talking with friends, other people in the industry to get the information they need. They're figuring it out on their own bootstraps and all that. But it is good that you that you provide that service, you know, because you were kind of talking about some of the other customers that you work with. They have engineers on staff and they have maintenance people on staff and all these other people. But oftentimes it's just one person who's building the brewery, brewing the beer, serving the beer doing all the accounting. So uh, having that support is is really critical. But I do kind of want to talk about what, once a brewer has the appropriate size chiller, once they have it in place, what can they kind of expect as far as like the hands-on, is it like a dog, you need to walk it every morning and night? Or is it something where you just like stick it in a closet and let it sit for the next year and not ever have to think about it? Well, I know Chris definitely has something to add on this. I'll, I'll chime in here real quick though um it's definitely not something you want to stick in a closet because that heat you're pulling out of that system you it needs to go somewhere so you don't want that you know recirculating around into this unit and so that's a potential problem that's where some of them are installed outside or you know in properly ventilated indoor spaces things like that they are very you know self-contained easy the you know the 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 preventative maintenance is, is very simple items. It's a lot of it comes down to the quality of your your um, glycol and your glycol. It's a glycol water mixture. The quality of that, and it's not so much a concern when we're talking about breweries because you know these people are cognizant of that exact thing to have quality medium in there. You know whatever they're doing with that. Um, you know, some applications we get, you know, they've really terrible well water that they're using. And so those will, you know, kind of scale up things, a lot of clogging and particulate matter and stuff like that. So that's not something you really run into a lot with um, brewery applications. But to be cognizant of water quality will most definitely make your life a lot easier from a maintenance standpoint and then a, a longevity of the unit itself uh, because you're going to, you know, avoid a lot of that corrosion and scale and, you know, different things that can precipitate out of that water and glycol mixture into your system to kind of like coat the metal pieces because you have a heat exchanger in there that has a very, you know, condensed pack of plates and it does that to, you know, take up less space but also be very energy efficient uh, but it's very fine passages, so you start to get things stuck in there. You start to get stagnant places where the water's not flowing, and so you're losing your efficiency out of there. And ultimately, you know, you could potentially freeze that up. In a glycol system, you're much, much better protected for something like that, but it is still a concern just for the, you know, reduced flow, so you're not using your surface area. You're not getting your energy transfer. So that five-ton unit, 
it can only do three tons now because you've created a new bottleneck in that system by reducing the size of where you can transfer that energy in the system. Yeah, and luckily here in, in, in the Yakima Valley, we have pretty soft water, so it's not a huge issue. Like if you were somewhere with incredibly high bicarbonate water. Um, but I when I worked uh, in Durango, our local brewery that I worked at, um, we added distilled water to the system and kind, kind of got mixed feedback from that from chemical people on, you know, you have to have the some type of hardness in there to transfer energy, but it worked pretty good for the brewery. So <laughs> I don't know, above my head. But, you know, you, you can check, you want to regularly check the pH of your glycol. And then um, if it is getting a little low, you you can add like a little bit of sodium hydroxide to just kind of keep you in where you want to be just for corrosion. We built our system with um, expansion PEX. They call it Pro-PEX, Wurzbo PEX. Uh, the reason why you want to do expansion pecs is you don't bottleneck it down. If you do the crimp style, say you do a one inch, when you crimp it, it actually goes to three quarters of an inch, and then it goes back up to one. And the further that you go on every single crimp, your 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 flow will actually encounter resistance, so you actually cut it down. And now you're talking about the, the tubes that's running from the chilling unit to the tanks? Yes, yep. Yeah, you really, uh, you know, you get this chiller, it just has inch and a half threaded stainless fittings. So you have to, you can either use PVC, you can use, um, or I guess it's ABS, you can use ABS. PVC there, also. There, there's, there's a lot of different ways you can go about, you know, getting that to your fermenters. Uh, we went with PEX because a lot of the local breweries in town had it. Chris from Bridal had a bunch left over and he kind of, you know, sold it to us at cost, so it was kind of a no-brainer to go with. Uh, we kind of went over overscale because he has pretty good-sized tanks. Uh, I think they're 20 barrels, but I'm not 100% on that. Uh, but he has one-inch packs, and we built ours one-inch packs as well, which is, like, literally our cooler. Like, it leaves a chiller at 28 degrees and it comes back at 29 and a half <laughs> because our loop's so small but i mean there's zero resistance in it you know it's only like 133 feet right with some of those glycol loops you get into with the bigger breweries they're you know five six hundred feet but really when you're when you're looking at building these systems materials matter glycol can be corrosive because especially if you're not you don't have any min minerality in it um, ro water is incredibly corrosive right distilled water there's no minerals in it so it's leaching everything out you have to you either have to put it in like a poly i think it's polyethylene plastic that those come in or a stainless steel uh, if you're using copper or anything it will just corrode it because it's super soft metal it'll precipitate out and eventually it will change the pH of the water, which accelerates uh, corrosion. And, you know, it's, it's just you really have to make sure what you're building these systems out of. And we went with PEX because it's super easy. I actually did ours by hand, which I would not recommend. There is a tool you can get, a battery-operated tool, that makes it so much easier. <laughs> but when you're building it, I mean, expansion PEX is great. You just stretch it out, slip it over, and it crimps. And, I mean... Once they're once they're on, they are just 
solid. I mean, I, I can't remember how many PSI, it's way over a glycol loop could ever be. It's like in the hundreds of PSI that they're good for. I can't believe how easy it was to put them together. And then it's kind of like a plastic, like a PVC, and you can actually kink it. And if you take a heat gun and heat it up, it'll actually straighten itself completely out like there was no bend there. It's 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 really impressive stuff. I would definitely recommend it, especially because when you're cleaning tanks, sanitizing tanks, your temperatures are going to go up and down and up and down, and you're going to have uh, just micro amounts of swelling from the steel, and you're going to eventually get leaks. PVC and ABS is the same way. It will kind of expand and contract, and it look, where it glues together, it can actually start leaking. Uh, and I've seen that in a couple of local breweries where they have glycol leaks and they, you know, they have to actually take the whole entire thing apart and re-glue it. And it's such a big project that they uh, temporarily, to try to get by, they just have, you know, buckets underneath it catching the glycol and refilling the chiller with the new glycol just until they can actually shut down that loop to, re- like, replace it. So I would definitely recommend PEX. Uh, that, that stuff was, was really great. Um, I just want to chime in on one thing there. When we're talking glycol, we're talking propylene glycol because it's food safe. And there are specific versions of it that are designed for food grade. Uh, but it, it is non, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Poisonous. <laughs> hazardous, non-hazardous. Um, and there's other glycols out there like antifreeze, which is what you put ethylene in your car. Glycol, right? Ethylene yeah. glycol. Those like ethylene glycol. Is an industrial grade glycol, um, and a lot of plants use it. But it is a, a biohazard. Um, there's levels of flammability that are incorporated with that, and so you just want to make sure you get the right glycol. Antifreeze that goes in your car definitely not the right choice. So you want to look at propylene glycol because when you got leaks like that, it's not that big of a deal. You can flush that stuff down to drain if you need to. Uh, you know, you don't need a hazmat suit to deal with it. So um, definitely propylene glycol food grade. That's a key thing. So looking at the size of the chiller, and then we got loop uh, materials. What other things do brewers need to think about or like what decisions need to be made? I wasn't, I hadn't even thought of this for the, you know, kind of prep myself for the conversation and Chris brought it up and I thought it was a, you know, very crucial thing because I run into it across all industries is insulating your piping. That is absolutely crucial one because you know having that really cold glycol loop because you're operating this at you know 25 degrees fahrenheit you're going to condense water even on you know pretty cold days and you know it's all considered you know with the dew point of what's going on with the air which is temperature and humidity and different factors that go into that but when you're running that cold you're always going to condense and that act of condensation is actually a heat transfer mode and it transfers heat into your glycol loop. So it's an added heat load. And so it, you know, makes your system less efficient. And it also could potentially undersize your system so you wouldn't be able to keep up at your peak demand. And so now it looks like the chiller is undersized, but it's not because you've added an additional load because all that surface area that's exposed Every time it's condensing water out, that's additional heat that's being pulled into the system. 
And so that is an absolutely crucial thing. And then it also is, you know, from a safety standpoint, you don't want water pooling all around your stuff, all your equipment and everything. And so I got to give kudos to Chris on bringing that up because it's one of the things I always look for when I go into a plant that's having some sort of issue. And I would say 50% of the time, that's what it is. Uh, I didn't, didn't even cross my mind here. So I was really glad that he sent me that note. Yeah. And the thing with, with your, with your condensate that's happening on those lines, that water is pulling CO2 out of the air. So it's actually super acidic and it can speed up corrosion like crazy. My most, uh, common thing that I see when I go into breweries is they'll insulate long legs and then they'll leave nineties and things like that uncovered. But the thing with that is, too, when you have liquid, you also have growth of some types of bacteria or molds, whatever. So when like ours, we did it with Armaflex Microban, which is a closed cell foam. Super cheap, really not that bad. Um, it's what we actually use in most of our chillers on the internal piping. It's, it's, it's actually solid. It's really cost effective. It works really well. Um, we did our glycol system, which when, when John wanted to do it on the ground, I was like, yeah, sure, I'll do that. Yeah. And then I was like, can I do that? And, uh, you know, went into it, bled the fermenter. So they were all full of, uh, all empty of air. And then, yeah, I mean, our glycol loop is on the ground and that's one of the biggest, um, things that we feedback that we get from brewers is the two biggest things they like in there is our floor drains or something like they've never seen before and our glycol loop is on the ground and both were kind of you know they were the same thing they were innovative right we wanted to make it different and and something that they had never seen and it and it worked great um, with insulating your glycol loops, uh, you want to glue them together with like a carpet glue on every single joint, and that will keep a microban area through the whole entire thing. So you're not growing any molds, you're not worried about any corrosion really. When you're when you're building that loop, just know that you have to insulate every aspect of it. One, it's going to save on corrosion. Two, it's going to save on heat transfer. Three, it's going to save on actual load on your chiller because, yeah, you're not, you know, you're not getting that heat transfer off and you're not creating all that acidic, acidic water that's just dripping down on your floors or, you know, corroding your pipes. And I mean, it's, it's a huge, it's a huge thing that's, seems so nominal that's like oh how much is insulation going to really do but when you actually look at it from a water standpoint and what's what's transferring energy it's a huge energy load that you're actually pulling off for no reason you're you know i mean think about it. if you send 28 degree water over 300 feet would you expect it to be 28 degrees at the end? No, it's going to have that heat transfer, which, you know, you want it to be 28 degrees because when you're crashing a beer and it's a 70, you know, you want to be able to, boom, get it down quick and get that load on the chiller, load off the chiller because, like, we have seven tanks. So, you know, I got a beer to crash today. I got a beer to crash tomorrow. I got a beer to crash tomorrow. Like, you know, it adds up. So you really, you really want to set yourself up for the best way possible to transfer those energies and be efficient because energy cost in brewing is huge. 
even on a nano scale, I mean, the more that you can save 10 cents here, 20 cents there, it adds up to hundreds or thousands of dollars at the end of the month that ultimately goes in your pocket. Yeah. And Tom, you talked about the return on investment ROI early on about how if you are going with the variable speed compressor, eventually it will pay for itself. Spending the extra money to make sure that all the piping, all the tubing is insulated, that will, you know, eventually pay for itself too. Are there any other like best practices or like tips and tricks that you can recommend that might seem maybe unnecessary or just like as an additional expense up front, but will actually benefit the brewer in the long run? I would say we've really touched on most of the the most impactful ones. There's, you know, some airflow things because these are what we call an air-cooled chiller. So ultimately, you know, we're, we're pulling the heat out of these tanks with that glycol that we're circulating through the system. The chiller then pulls that heat out of the glycol and puts it into a refrigeration circuit. That refrigeration circuit then has to reject that heat somehow. We do that with forced air over what we would call like a coil or, you know, a condenser. And ultimately, you're just rejecting it to atmosphere. Um, you know, always increasing the entropy of the universe. But that heat is generated, so we got to get rid of it. So that's how we do it. With an air-cooled unit, we're forcing air through a coil, and so what you need to do is be considerate of, like, what sort of conditions you're going to put this thing in. I talked about, you know, we don't want to put this in a closet because that hot air is going to recirculate, and so you're going to continually add more and more heat to it. So you want to have some turnover of that air in your system, some decent ventilation, have it in a large area, have it sitting outside. And so those are, you know, critical things because as that, air that's entering the unit starts to increase, you lose efficiency. So the colder the air is, the better it is as pulling that heat out of the refrigeration circuit. And so as that temperature goes up, you lose that efficiency. And ultimately, you know, our chillers are designed for pretty rough industrial environments. So we can handle some pretty high temperatures. Like we rate our tiller at 95 degrees Fahrenheit because we design for pretty much worst case scenarios. Um, but as it goes over that, you know, we can continue running up to 105, even higher sometimes. Um, but we're, we are losing efficiency and we're losing capacity because the chiller is, you know, it's designed for five tons at that 95 ambient. But as you go above that, you have to derate because now it's harder to reject that energy out of the system. And so your, your five ton chiller is now a four and a half ton. And so there's things like that. And then where there's, you know, air filters on that too, because you don't want that dust and dirt and debris getting into your coil for your condenser. And so I guess, uh, you know, a thing to be cognizant of and a tip is to kind of regularly check that air filter and it's a cleanable thing. You can vacuum it out, you know, blow it out, you can wash it. So there's, you know, all different levels of cleaning there. And that kind of falls into the the PM, the periodic, you know, preventative maintenance of these. And when we provide our chillers, we provide them with a, an a operation installation manual. And inside of that, there is a chart that we provide that gives you, you know, kind of a, a schedule with the certain items that should be checked and when they should be checked and how often. And so that's one of the things on there as well. This might be more of a theoretical question, I guess. Brewing is about not only cooling things down, but also heating things up. So if the unit is pulling, you know, a lot of heat, creating a lot of heat, like, is there the potential to capture that heat and then use it in a meaningful way? That's 
absolutely possible. We do that in all sorts of industries. There's, there's uh, called basically like heat reclaim. And you, a lot of times it's on what we would call a water-cooled unit. So instead of having the fan and using the uh, air coil that we're you know, forcing air through to cool that refrigerant down, we actually have another heat exchanger in there that has water and refrigeration, but it's on the high side and you use a higher temperature water. And really where that comes from is from cooling tower systems where you use evaporation to generate your heat reduction rejection. And you're limited by basically your ambient conditions and your wet bulb temperature. So you can't achieve the temperatures that you can with a refrigeration circuit chiller. And so you, you know, you're really driven by the temperature requirement. With a cooling tower, you can generally get about 85 degrees out of it year round. And so if you have processing equipment that can handle that higher temperature, then you can use that. And it's a lot less expensive to operate because a refrigeration compressor is going to be, you know, the, the hog of all the energy in a system. So if you can eliminate that, it becomes more efficient. But now you've sacrificed your ability to achieve your temperature. And so when we have those systems where we have other equipment that we can cool with that higher temperature, then it makes sense to look at a water-cooled chiller. It's just one more thing we're adding on that cooling tower system. And so what you can do is before you actually send that now hot water out to the cooling tower to be cooled, you can have it run through another heat exchanger and you could heat water for your hot liquor tank, something like that. And so you're, you're exactly on the right path there. It's just whether the infrastructure for your system requirements merits being able to kind of pursue something like that but we do that in multiple other industries has there been a lot of innovation in the space or is there kind of like uh, the next step do you see is there something everybody in the industry is striving towards i guess is more the better way to phrase it yeah well uh, I think, you know, both of those kind of questions you asked there is, you know, there is the innovation and there are, you know, specific goals that are people are striving for, you know, within my industry. The key one is energy efficiency. That's, you know, that drives almost everything that we're really looking at. Uh, you know, another key consideration is reliability and redundancy, because we're talking about these plants that are, you know, 24-7, 365. So if they have a pump seal blow, they want to have another backup pump that's built in that will automatically turn on. So it's things like that that drive us to look at how we configure our systems. Um, ultimately, I mean, refrigeration has been around for, I uh, guess, probably 110, 120 years now. That thermodynamic process isn't going to change because that's what it is. It's how you accomplish the things within that. And so that's where like the variable speed compressor is an innovation and it, you know, accomplishes both, you know, what are we striving towards? Well, energy efficiency and reliability. Um, but there's, there's constantly new technologies coming out. Um, Thermal care is a big proponent of a, a compressor that's out there that's actually oilless and it uses magnetic bearings. And this is generally for much larger systems. It's a pretty cool, high technology. We were one of the first to incorporate it for industrial cooling because it was more focused on HVAC, where your load is pretty constant and steady and even. And we're looking at, you know, highly variable loads with industry, you know, machines turning off and on all the time and things like that. And so we incorporated that into our equipment 
and kind of designed our control system in the way that we configure the components that, you know, support that chiller and made that work. And so it was something that was pretty huge for us with massive energy savings, pretty expensive component because it's very, very high technology. You're talking, you know, a Ferrari versus, a, you know, a Ford F-150. They accomplish maybe the same thing. They get you from point A to point B, but one of them does it, you know, really well. <laughs> um, but so that's, you know, some of the cool technology out there. There's all sorts of really innovative stuff for ways to reject the heat out of the system, ultimately the atmosphere. Uh, there's these, you know, these are things that I go down YouTube rabbit holes on and things like that. And I saw this stuff that's, it's like a, um, it's a, an emitter of photons as the energy. And so they actually leave the atmosphere. And so you're not creating any sort of greenhouse gases or anything like that, you know, warming effect, climate change, things like that. And it's extremely efficient, but you have to have a huge area. And so there's these compromises that we just haven't figured out to be able to implement it into our equipment yet. And so as that technology develops, our team as you know, an R and D team, they kind of, you know, keep their, keep the pulse of these different things. And as they develop and grow and there's, there's constantly trade shows that our guys can go to and learn about new technologies. And so we're constantly, you know, working towards those innovations. Uh, but I would say right now, the, the low hanging fruit for, across my industry is variable speed stuff it's you know we have pumps fans compressors really anywhere there's a motor and you have you know the demand on it varies variable speed makes perfect sense because you're saving that energy yeah and the other thing that i would like to add that we put in place because our chiller was too big for the loop we built is pressure regulating valves at every fermenter and then we have the one at the end of the high pressure line so when you when you have a glycol loop you'll have the high pressure line is what feeds into the vessels then you have a lower pressure line which is what the vessels exit and goes and then to the return to the chiller when i built ours it, uh, we actually built it in the basement, so it comes up through the floor, goes through and feeds all the tanks, and then goes through a pressure-reducing valve that's set at 9 PSI. So if all tanks are off, it will still continually flow so it doesn't deadhead the pump. And then all the pressure-reducing valves at every single tank right after the solenoid valve right before the solenoid valve technically i don't think it matters necessarily but i would say probably after it's i want to say it's before i think it goes pressure regulator valve solenoid no i think it's after you're right there edit that out uh, <laughs> then it goes into the tank at 15 psi it goes up into the return and when you set this up you will have first tank in is last tank out that will balance your system you also have in the bottom, out the top, because heat rises. So when you plug in these fermenters, you will feed them through the bottom of the cone, out through the top. And depending on how many jackets you have, if, like ours are only one and two barrel fermenters, they only have one jacket, so it's really easy, in and out. If you get to, I think it's 10 barrel fermenters is where I've seen it, you have two jackets. And that becomes a little more difficult because you have ball valves that you're going to close off to keep the flow 
even between the two jackets so you don't stratify inside the tank because you can do that. And it, that will take some finicky setting. And if you do that, all you do is just turn the bottom one off. It'll flop the tank and equalize temperature. And then you can try to set them again. But when you're, when you're building these systems, you really want to talk about balance. And that is first tank in, last tank out. So when you come in, say you have a room, you come up from the supply side of the chiller on the right side of the room, it will go through and it will feed all seven tanks. You come up through the floor and the right side of the room, and then it goes to the left, feeds all seven tanks. Then you start another loop, which it's just a pipe you deadhead at the right side, and that's where you put in your first tank will be the first tank in that loop because it technically is the last tank out. And then it goes in synchrony until the end, and then you go up and out to the return line of the chiller. And that is called reverse return piping. So there's there's really two methods for this. It's direct return and reverse return. Reverse return with the first in, last out is automatic, you know, self-balancing. So you get equal flow rates through all of your usage points. Direct return, it is first in, first out. And so what you actually have to do is you have to mechanically throttle your flow rates so that they balance out. So you can still force it to do the same thing. Uh, but one, you know, is it's a more significant installation, but in the long run, it works out easier. Um, a lot of times you'll see, you'll see both in, you know, industrial applications, the direct return, what that does is it provides you some flexibility. So if you have different things that are at the usage points, they may require different flow rates and you may be swapping those out. So like I'm in an injection molding facility, they have 50 machines and they're ripping out an old one and putting a new one in. It has different water usage with that reverse return. It doesn't really give them that flexibility. And so that direct return, while, you know, it is more work to balance that system, it does give you that ability to now influence the flow, whether that new machine requires more or less. Yeah. And an another thing that I want to touch on that I totally spaced when we were talking about building this is the importance of ball valves at any place that you want or may need to do service. So how I built our system is right at the discharge of uh, any line is a ball valve. So like the inlet line, which would be the high pressure line, comes through, goes to a ball valve. Then you have your pressure regulator valve, solenoid valve, goes to the tank. At the discharge of the tank, I put a T and another valve, just in case I needed to take that tank out and swap it out for a bigger one. I also put a ball valve at the end of the whole entire tank system right on the return line in case I wanted to cut it off and see what the actual pressure was going to that vessel. Uh, it actually came in really handy because I was able to turn the ball valve off, take the glycol lines, which we did out of glycol hose uh, that we sourced from GW Kent. Uh, really great stuff, really flexible. You can get around, move your tanks around if you need to. It's not hard piped. So you're not kind of constricted and not worried about breaking anything because, you know, any 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 type of 
pipe at like 28 degrees PVC ABS, it's going to be pretty fragile if you bump it. So the glycol hose is actually fairly nice. I mean, to be able to give you room and area to work around. But when, when I, when, cause we built the glycol system on the ground, I took those ball valves above the tank and then bled all the air out of that entire tank prior to hooking it up. And then since our glycol chiller is in the basement, we had to do what's called a reverse P-trap. So it has to be 12 inches above the highest jacket on any of your tanks. You have to put, it's like, say you have a, you know, you're going up one foot, then you're going to go over a foot. You're going to have to have a vacuum breaker and then down to your chiller. And that what that vacuum breaker does is prevents the loop from emptying itself on the on the vacuum that you're going to create when you shut the chiller off. Really, it's easier to put them on the ceiling, but they don't look as cool. Yeah, no, it's a good point about the ball valves and the, the P-trap too as well, the inverted P-trap. Um, ball valves, best practice anywhere you go is to always be able to isolate each piece of equipment because you never know if you're going to have to rip it out and you don't want to have to drain your whole system. So that's a great practice to do. And then with the uh, the inverted P-trap with the vacuum breaker, that's also crucial because any time that you shut that system down, there's, uh, you know, there's a check valve off the discharge of the pump, but you also are going to have a vertical line on that return. And so when that system shuts down, it's going to drain out by gravity because the tank is open to atmosphere. It's, it's covered for, you know, protection from dirt and debris, but it's not pressurized. So that, you know, that process fluid will drain out off that vertical run. And it will pull a vacuum and pull all the rest of it out. So it'll pull it out completely from the entire rest of the circuit, and it'll overflow that tank. And so it'll be a nice big mess for you. I've so, been clever yeah. in glycol many times. <laughs> so that that inverted P-trap is a, a crucial piece of the pie. And um, uh, thermal care, actually, you know, we do that sort of thing for all of our installations. So we have, you know, engineered documentation drawings that, based on the diameter of your piping, how big that P-trap needs to be dimension-wise, we could get you, you know, one of the vacuum breakers. So that's that's something that we can definitely assist with. Well, you've been brewing on the new system for a couple months now. Did you get it right the first time? Is there anything that you wish you would have done differently? Yes. Oh, man. Yeah. We we had some growing pains for sure. We definitely, I when we bought the chiller, I didn't take into account that the pump was going to be so big and we were going to have a 42 psi discharge so we ended up putting uh some pressure reducing valves in after the fact and then you know it's just growing pains on trying to balance a system i mean it really changes when how many tanks you have how many of them are at the same time if they're all in cold crashing or if you have a couple active or what you're dropping it really it's just going to take you time to figure out your system and get it to where you want to be. When we built right out of the discharge of the tank, I put a T there with a pressure gauge so I could monitor the pressure that was coming out of that tank to make sure that it wasn't exceeding 15 PSI. And then, and then also to be able to like bleed that thing easier than taking the hose off and putting it up, you know. So when you're 
when you're building your system, you want to make sure that you realize air always travels up. So it's going to go to the highest point. So if you're going to try to do something like we did and put it on the ground, you're going to have to have provisions to be able to bleed all the air out of the tanks. The other big thing I didn't notice that we would need to do was monitor your glycol. Since it is open atmosphere, you do get a small amount of evaporation out of it. So that's kind of like a weekly check you're going to want to do. You're going to want to make sure you're on your your levels are okay. Uh, there was one point to where I think our glycol got a little too low. It wasn't really to the low line, but we were having issues with the chiller tripping. And I noticed that the glycol was low and I refilled it to you know, the full mark and then they went away. And I don't, I don't, I'm not hundred percent sure if that was the issue or, you know, we were kind of having some electrical issues with surging and stuff. So we had some phase phase issues. So I'm not a hundred percent sure of what those issues were, but I know that when I filled the glycol back up, they went away and that's my story. I'm sticking to it. You, you fixed it. <laughs> I fixed it. it. That makes sense. It does have a, a a low level alarm because if you say you get a leak in your system and you're continually pumping, you're going to pump out all the volume in your system. Then you're going to run your pump dry. That's going to damage your equipment. So we have provisions in there to protect it and to you know for the unit to protect itself. So it would shut down on something like that. So usually for something like that, we would have a warning and then an actual alarm. So it's going to notify you something that's going on. It's going to keep running. So it's not, you know, to that critical level yet. Then once it hits that critical level, it's going to shut the unit down because we'd rather stop providing cooling than damage equipment. We've talked about a lot of good stuff. We covered why fermentation temp control is really important. We talked about how the NQ series from Thermal Care really provides that variable speed, energy efficiency, checks a lot of the boxes. Chris really enjoys using it. So we talked about a lot of those benefits. We talked about some things that brewers need to consider when they are shopping around for a glycol chilling unit. We talked about materials. We talked about some building schematics and things like that. Is there anything else that we need to address or talk about? No, I think the 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 real important thing for a nano brewer to know is obviously they can use us as an advocate. I mean, you can always feel free to email me at chris at yakimavalleyhops.com if you're thinking about building anything like this, and we can totally work together on it. I have schematics now that I've learned. Hindsight's twenty twenty, man, so... If I can help in any way on what you're doing and kind of influence you or answer any questions you have, um, you're not going to want to set your glycol system to any lower than 28 as you will start freezing on the jackets of the tanks. Just surface area freezing if you go too low. I experienced that as a home brewer when I first got my conicals. I turned my glycol system to 16 because I thought it was awesome until my beer froze. So, <laughs> you know, be, be mindful of that. And that's something that you kind of, you can kind of look on Pro Brewer and kind of figure out, but you know, use us as an advocacy for if you have an idea and it doesn't have to be glycol systems. I mean, I built the whole entire thing from the walls and FRP to tying in the glycol loop and epoxy in the floors, and we'll do more shows on everything that we can to try to help because, as you know, I'm a pretty mechanical person and I'm, um, I don't know if I would go as far as Tom said and say I'm very sharp, but. I figure things out along the way and 
figuring them out along the way is is kind of tough and you will experience spots where you you have you run out of people to ask you know you you don't exactly know where to go for it and if i can't get you the answer i can get you to someone that can you know especially with you know all the experience in building the brewery and knowing what changes that we need to do so i would think that's the biggest benefit is reach out whenever you want because i would definitely love to help you or your friend or whatever to any success that you might have yeah having friends who've already done it already you know had that hands-on experience is really important you know just like you leaned on chris at varietal brewing feel free yeah well we'll drop the emails and contact for everybody in the show notes so you can email chris you can email tom not at midnight he's not up and hanging out anymore that late only for me I do have I have a two and a half year old and another one on the way, so there's less late nights going on around my house. I really did think I heard him getting in trouble on one of the calls. <laughs> that may have happened, maybe. <laughs> At least you're having less intentional late nights, you know, more like Agreed. Dad. <laughs> hey. Yeah. Oh, but No, oh. no, honey, it's a work thing. <laughs> yeah, I uh it's not Jake from State Farm. Um <laughs> No, uh, I did want to, you know, chime in and I do, you know, 100% endorse Chris as a great contact for anybody that's trying to do this themselves and learn about this for somebody to have gone through what he's gone through and learn about it. And, you know, from just the conversations that I've had with him, I know that he's probably had similar conversations on other aspects of doing this because he asks good questions. He's thoughtful in what he's trying to do and has his end goal in sight and you know really push towards accomplishing that goal the right way and so to have somebody like that as a resource is a, a, a very valuable thing and for him to you know sit here and give his email out on this podcast he you know he's i would take advantage of it that's that's where i'll end that statement well tom thank you so much for making the trip out here really appreciate your insight and your knowledge on this matter we've really enjoyed using the the thermal care chiller chris has a lot of good things to say about it the beer that he makes with it really good so the end product reviews are in and they're all good so tom thanks for coming out yeah really really appreciate talking with you thank you very much for having me it's been a very good experience being here you guys got a great place and then the beer has been fantastic Chris, thanks for making the trip all the way up from downstairs at your brewery. I'm sure those stairs were really tall. Well, you know, I, I, I have bad knees, <laughs> and I, I, I had to, I had to work hard and make beer. You know, it's a, that's a, that's a job in itself. I have to make it and sample it, and and then talk about it. It's, you know, hard work, but somebody's got to do it. Rough life. And everyone out there who is listening, thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. And we will continue with this series. We'll be talking more about equipment. We'll be talking about building the brewery. We'll talk about building better recipes. We'll talk about sourcing ingredients. All of these complicated topics that do go into starting a new brewery, building a brewery. Maybe you're transitioning from home brewing to pro brewing. Maybe you're just starting off on your own, making your own brewery. We are going to have that resource, that education, that knowledge, and help you make better beer. So thank you so much for listening, and happy brewing. Happy brewing.